Michael Levin is a developmental biologist working at the Tufts University Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. If you haven't been introduced to Michael's work yet, prepare to have your mind blown. Many things I thought I knew about biology have now been overturned by Michael Levin's studies relating to growth and form in biological organisms. The discoveries made by Michael and his team may be just as big a deal as the discovery of DNA. In this episode, we'll cover Michael's discoveries regarding growth and form and their implications, including potential cancer treatments, regeneration of limbs and other body tissues, including brain tissue, and the development of novel organisms via bioelectric methods rather than by directly altering DNA. Michael Levin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. You've done experiments on flatworms called planaria, an organism that can regenerate a full body from a body part that's been cut off. What did you learn about memory from those experiments? Well, uh, there are two kinds of memory that we worked with. We worked with behavioral memory in three-dimensional space, which is what most people think of as learning and, and behavior type of memory. And then we also worked on uh, the memory of regeneration, meaning uh, anatomical memory. So with respect to the learning, we, uh, we, we recapitulated with new modern uh, automated techniques, something that was actually discovered by James McConnell back in the 60s, which is that if you train planaria uh, and, and, and get them to have a particular kind of memory, in our case, we train them to remember that they would be fed with liver on a particular uh, bumpy sort of uh, shape on the, on the floor of the Petri dish, uh, that then what you could do is cut off their head, which contains a centralized brain, and the tail would sort of sit there for about a week uh, and not do anything, and then eventually it would regrow a new head. And when those animals regrew their new head, then uh, you could test them behaviorally and recover the fact that they still remembered the original training. That's so this crazy. is, yeah, this is very interesting. You know, McConnell published this in the 60s. Um, some people uh, were not able to reproduce it. Some people were able to reproduce it. It was fairly controversial. And uh, we, using a, an automated device to, tra to train and test the planaria, we showed that he was 100% he was correct. Uh, it, it absolutely works. And it really uh, forces us to ask the question of what exactly is the substrate of memory? Where is it uh, stored? And how, in particular, how does it move through the body? You know, in this case, memories are literally imprinted on this new brain as it develops from scratch. And not only is that sort of some profound questions about memory and, and, and in general, but actually it has biomedical implications because presumably in the next decade, we're going to have uh, stem cell therapies where patients with 40, 50, 60 years of personality of memory and so on are going to have uh, new stem cells put into their brain for degenerative disease. And the question is what's going to happen, right? What happens to the cognition of, a, of, a, of an adult, uh, an adult uh, body where, uh, where parts of the brain are replaced by new cells? So when you cut a planaria up, uh, say that, that uh, tail end that you were just mentioning before, does that actually have DNA in it or is it, is it somehow growing back and remembering that form without having DNA? Well, every, every cell in the body of a planarian has DNA. So it certainly, it certainly has DNA, but having DNA is a far cry from understanding how uh, large scale shape forms. Yeah. Because yeah. if you think about it, if you take a planarian and you cut it exactly in half, the cells on one side of that cut are going to make a head. The cells on the other side of the cut are going to make a tail. Those cells were direct neighbors sitting right next to each other. They all have the same DNA, and yet they have completely different anatomical fates. 
So, you know, that's something else that we can maybe discuss is this is this notion of what exactly does DNA do in terms of producing three dimensional shape. But in any case, yeah, certainly the tail has DNA. Okay. So if you had to make an educated guess, where would you predict the information for the body plan is stored or, or how? Well, the best way to think about this is uh, using the hardware software analogy. And I want to be clear, um, I'm not suggesting that uh, living organisms uh, resemble the kind of computers that we deal with on a daily basis in the sense of being sort of linearly uh, executing a set of instructions that were written by a human and all that. Of course, of course, that's not what's going on. But there is something very instructive and powerful about this um, reprogrammability kind of uh, concept that exists in computer science. What the genome gives you is, uh, what the genome specifies is the micro level hardware that every cell gets. So every cell has a complement of proteins. Those proteins uh, are specified in the DNA. That's what's in the DNA, that's what's in the genome. If you read the genome, there's nothing directly in there about the size, the shape, the symmetry type, the structure of the body. You don't see any of that information. What you see is the micro level uh, hardware of every cell. Now that hardware is amazing because when when that hardware is uh, is 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 run in parallel fashion, meaning every single uh, there's a group of cells, every cell is running uh, some some subset of these proteins that are specified in the DNA. That hardware has some really interesting software modes, and we call that physiology. Basically, it starts the cells are communicating with each other, they're processing information, they're doing computations. And like any machine that you might build, it has a default set of behaviors that it does out of the box. So you can think about think about buying a um, a calculator from the store. So 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 there's a calculator. There's a uh, a hardware uh, specification that describes exactly where all of the transistors and various other components of the calculator uh, sit. Doesn't say anything about uh, mathematics or any of the other things that calculator can do. It just says where do the transistors go. And then you uh, put in some batteries, you turn on the juice, uh, the, the, that's equivalent to sort of booting up the organism during development. The, uh, the, the, the electronics uh, starts to act and it has a default behavior. It's, it starts out and it shows a little zero on the, on the LCD screen. That is the default behavior of that uh, piece of hardware. If you ask where is that zero programmed? Well, uh, it isn't programmed anywhere. It's the uh, it's the uh, the workings out of the laws of physics, the laws of uh, mathematics, and so on that are implemented by the machine that you just built. And then you might find out that it's a reprogrammable calculator, which means that yeah, it can it can uh, it can show a zero, but it can also do a lot of other things, including store memory and uh, and do all kinds of interesting mathematical functions. Again, all of which you are not going to find on the hardware specification of the calculator itself. So. <clears throat> um, it's a tricky question to say where is the is the information uh, for for a body plan stored. It isn't directly stored anywhere. It is uh, it is manifested uh, through the laws of physics and the laws of computation by a machine, and that machine is specified by the DNA. But in in uh, in 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 manifesting those those laws, something very interesting happens, which is that. Uh, among, in, in addition to biochemical circuits, biomechanical kinds of pro properties, there are these uh, bioelectrical events that occur in, in tissue, and these bioelectrical events tend to store a, a coarse-grained memory of what the large-scale structure is going to be. We can now read those memories, and to some extent, we can interpret them, and we can rewrite them. And that, uh, that is, you know, it's very much parallel to what happens in neuroscience, where there's a collection of cells, those cells communicate electrically, those are the cells in your brain. 
and as a result of various uh, properties of, of, of computational networks and other laws of physics, they're able to store memories, guide behavior, and so on. Yep. Wow. Okay. Uh, what are non-neural bioelectric states? Yeah, basically, uh, if you think about uh, the, you know, the fundamental commitment of neuroscience is that all of the mental uh, states of, of, of you as a person uh, or, or of any animal, all of the, uh, the memories, the preferences, the goals, all of, all of these things uh, are encoded in some fashion. They're, they're, they're literally uh, mediated by the electrical activity of your brain. So in theory, and people are working on this, this is called neural decoding. If we were able to measure all of the electrical states in your brain, meaning which, which neurons are doing what, and we knew how to decode this, we would have direct access to all of the things that were part of your cognitive apparatus. So if we sort of think about where did that trick uh, come from of storing, um, uh, storing computation, storing uh, the different, different kinds of mental states, uh, plans, uh, you, plans of the future, memories of the past, how do you store that in electrical networks? Well, it turns out that that didn't come from nowhere, sort of just evolved uh, when brains came on the scene. Evolution discovered long before that, that electrical networks are great at computation and at processing information. And so somewhere around the time of bacterial biofilms, uh, individual cells, and at that time bacteria, evolved the ability to join into electrical networks that process information. And if you want to know what information they're processing, it's distributed in across the uh, the population of cells or of, of bacteria in a biofilm, and uh, the electrical states are basically the patterns of electrical activity, the resting potential of the different cells, the ways that those potentials uh, move and change, and so on. All right. Can you tell us about your work with Danny Adams regarding the electrical face? Yeah, um, yeah. Danny originally came uh, to my lab to uh, study the. Uh, she, she started out as a postdoc uh, in my group and then, and then eventually uh, became a PI herself. Uh, she came with the, with the intent to um, really try to understand uh, some of the bioelectrical, the, the endogenous bioelectrical patterns that specifically dictate the, uh, the, the gene expression and, and ultimately the anatomy of various organs. And she started with the face. And uh, what she found was something uh, quite amazing, which we called the electric face, which is that prior to the regionalization of the uh of the of the ectoderm that's going to become the face into all the different components of the face right so you have to demarcate where the eyes are going to be the mouth the, the um the, the the various other organs and so on uh she found that uh, that uh there's a there's a bioelectrical pre-pattern that is before the genes turn on to really uh, pattern that face uh, there are already patterns of depolarization and hyperpolarization that demarcate where all of those things are going to go. And more importantly, what she found is that not only can you read the picture of the future face long before it actually appears, that pattern, as, as she was able to show, is instructive. In other words, it's, if, you, if, you move, if you move those electrical states around, let's say you wipe off uh, the, the, the voltage state that uh, that's, uh, a pro, um, uh, co corresponds to building an eye in a certain location, you, you wipe that off the face and you put that, you, you induce that electrical pattern somewhere else, which, which we showed that years, years before that, you can, you can uh, actually, you can induce eyes in, in uh, various other locations in the body. In other words, the pattern of the face is the, the, the pattern of the electric face is uh, instructive for where the components are going to go. And she was able to also uh, use this to provide an explanation for some human uh, craniofacial birth defects, because 
there are mutations in human patients, which, for example, like Anderson Table, for example, gives you um, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, but also facial dysmorphias. Right. Oh. And it was right. And it was understood quite early why there's a cardiac arrhythmia, because it's an ion channel. It's a mutation in an ion channel. It was not understood. Why would why would the shape of the face change just because an ion channel is mutated? And so her work very naturally shows why that happens. It's because the electric uh, the, the electric pattern that normally underlies uh, the, the design of the face is is uh, abnormal in those in those patients. Right. It's interesting. Uh, in another fascinating experiment, you took the skin cell from a frog and found that despite being an ordinary skin cell, it could develop ability to move around in a tunnel and possibly make decisions, if I uh, remember correctly. And can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yep. I think you're talking about uh, the what we call the xenobots. Um, yep. And uh, this is uh, this is joint work with uh, Josh Bongard's lab. And so uh, Sam Kriegman and uh, Doug Blackiston uh, are the uh, people also involved on this uh, on this team. It's not a single cell. What happens is what, what we wanted to do was uh, we wanted to ask what were the baseline uh, capabilities of various cells in the body. So normally skin cells are um, instructed by their neighbors to have this sort of boring two-dimensional life as the outer surface of a tadpole, keeping out the pathogens, things like that. And so we are very interested in evolution and plasticity, and we wanted to know what would cells do in a completely different scenario. And so we simply um, took off a whole bunch of uh, skin cells. So it's not just one cell, but it's a, it's a large number of, of, right. of uh, right. cells that are already faded to be skin. We took them off of an early frog embryo and we put them in a separate, uh, we put them in a separate dish uh, to give them a chance to kind of reboot their multicellularity and to see what would happen. Now, in principle, many things could have happened. They could have done absolutely nothing. They could have crawled off in opposite directions. They could have formed a flat monolayer the way that cell culture, uh, cell culture uh, often does. Instead, what they did was they uh, over uh, overnight they they basically uh, assemble into a uh, into a sphere, and uh, one of the amazing things about them is that they have uh, those skin cells have these little little uh, motile hairs called cilia. Then they usually are rotating these cilia around to keep a flow of water moving down the edge of the embryo to uh, keep off the you know various various uh, pathogens and parasites and so on. And, uh, and, and, and spread the mucus around. So, so these xenobots, um, what they do is they, they, uh, they use those cilia instead to move around. So they basically like wow. little tiny, like little tiny oars, you know, they sort of row against the water yeah. and, uh, and, 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 in, and they do so in a coordinated fashion and that enables the whole, the xenobot to move around. Now, uh, what we have demonstrated is, is a number of things. So, so these xenobots, uh, they have self-directed motion, meaning that you don't need to pace them like uh, other biobots. You, they, they move on their own. They have a variety of movement types. They can go in circles. They can go straight back and forth. They can uh, navigate um, uh, uh, bends in mazes so um, without having to hit the opposite wall. Uh, they can regenerate. So if you take a pair of scissors and you cut them almost in half, they will uh, come together and reseal back into their... Uh, kind of uh, correct new new xenobot shape. And one of the most amazing things they can do is they do something called uh, kinematic self-replication, which means that uh, if you if you provide them with a bunch of loose skin cells in their environment, just sprinkle a bunch of loose uh, embryonic skin cells in the dish, what the xenobots will do is they'll run around in circles. By that motion, they collect these other, they're sort of like little bulldozers. They collect these cells into little piles and of course, we know what happens when you collect uh, uh, skin uh, skin cells into a little piles, they turn into xenobots. So in effect, they're making the next generation of xenobots 
And when those nanobots mature, guess what they do? They run around and collect new stem cells and make the next generation of bots. So it's wow. basically kind of like von Neumann's dream, which is to have a machine that uh, runs around, finds parts and makes copies of itself out of parts that it makes elsewhere. Now, what's what's you know one 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 thing that's super interesting about that is uh, what we've done is we've we've uh, keep in mind we've not added anything to these cells. There's no no genomic editing. There is no uh, no nanomaterials. We haven't really added anything. What we've done is something interesting and important. It's a, it's an important way of engineering. We've taken off some constraints. We've taken off the constraint of these other embryonic cells that normally keep these cells to a skin-like pattern. And we've also made it impossible for them to reproduce the way frogs normally reproduce. And what we see is that despite, despite that, what they are able to do is uh, <clears throat> find a completely new way of making copies of themselves that, as far as we know, doesn't exist anywhere in the animal kingdom. And so this is really, this is, this is really important. And, and, you know, and, and people often say, well, well, how come, how come you didn't genetically engineer them? And sure, in the future, in the future, of course, we're going to put new synthetic biology circuits into them and so on. But the more important thing for now is to understand the native capability, plasticity, and uh, ability to handle novelty of these cells in new environments without any any changes. This is the same frog genome that is able to do all this stuff, and there's never been selection to be go a good xenobot, right? There's been selection to be a, to be a very successful frog for sure, but there's never been a, a specific selection to be a good xenobot. So that's you know that's very important. And then and just the last thing, you know, you said in your, in your question, you asked about decision making. We can have a whole discussion about what it actually means to make decisions because that's not at all obvious, but we've not yet made any claims about the um, cognitive abilities of these xenobots because that's very much under investigation still so we are uh, testing how you know do they have memory preferences what kinds of things can they learn how what are how rich is their behavioral repertoire that you know that that all is still tbd so we haven't we haven't made any claims about that but uh but but we do know that uh, that they have a variety of of, of novel self-directed behaviors and and we can talk about what it means to make decisions and so on Oh, that's amazing stuff. Uh, so do you have any theory as, as to how it can be that xenobots are able to navigate their surroundings without having a nervous system? Yeah, well, I, there's a there's a sure uh, there's a whole field of uh, of research called basal cognition, which asks the question, uh, what did life do before nervous systems came on the scene? And there are many, many different types of life forms that navigate their environment very successfully without a brain and without a nervous system. So there are, of course, single cell organisms like bacteria, paramecia, you know, amoebas and various other things. There are slime molds. We've done some some experiments with slime molds where, for example, you can take uh, you can take a slime mold, put it in the middle of a dish and some distance away you put either one glass disc and then on the you put one glass disc and on the other side of it you put three glass discs and for whatever strange reason that we still don't understand why these slime molds have a preference for heavier objects in their environment and so what that what that slime mold will do despite not having a brain or a nervous system using a biomechanical uh, sensor where it literally uh, uh, pulls on the substrate that it's sitting on and can feel the distribution of mass in its environment it will uh, preferentially go to the heavier mass so it can sort of at a distance it could find the three the three discs rather than one and these are just inert glass there's no food there's no there's no chemical gradients there so uh there there are many examples and maybe many people have wonderful examples of course in plants uh, there's there's a tons of examples in bacteria of uh of, of creatures navigating their world so you know uh biology has been solving problems in different spaces in, including 
metabolic spaces, physiological spaces, transcriptional spaces, uh, morph and anatomical morphous spaces, meaning the the distribute you know all the the space of possible anatomical configurations, long before it developed brains and muscles and started to use those same tricks to navigate three dimensional space. But by then, you know, by then, by then, a lot of this complexity has, was already was already in place. Uh, can we rule out the idea that consciousness is an emergent phenomena arising from the brain? Well, uh, look, uh, I think it would take a, a really long time to get into that question properly in the sense that we can't really say anything until we have we agree on a definition of, of what consciousness is. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, unclear that that we really have a good definition anyway. Uh, what I can say is that I, I, don't, I don't typically say too, too much about consciousness per se, because it's extremely difficult to do experiments specifically on consciousness. What you can do experiments on very easily is, is cognition, behavior, and sentience. And those things, uh, I, think, uh, I think it's very clear at this point that those things do not require a brain. And the simplest, the simplest way to, uh, to real, and, and, and so the simplest way to think about that is, look, all of us made the transition from a single cell, right? So, so a collection of, of, of uh, chemical uh, reactions, basically, to a, uh, a, a sentient uh, being that's going to make claims about having consciousness and, and having beliefs and, and memories and so on. That transition was smooth and it was slow. There is no part in, there's no particular point in embryonic development where anybody can say, oh yes, there's the lightning flash that now turns this set of chemical signals into a creature that has actual sentience. Okay, there's, there's, no, there's no step like that. It's a very smooth process. So whatever it is, so basically the bottom line is uh, if we take developmental biology seriously and if we take evolution seriously, uh, whatever it is that you and I have, you can call it consciousness, you can call it whatever you like, whatever it is that you and I have, it developed very slowly and smoothly from a single cell state. So at a point where you certainly didn't have a brain. And there is, and in fact, there is no, there's no time point at which you can say, bang, now you have a brain, you know, minutes ago you didn't, but now you do. So there, that, that, that just doesn't exist. The brain uh, develops very, uh, sort of very slowly. And if, and if you know, if, if there is a, a theory of something very discreet that happens at a particular time point, I've never heard a, con a convincing uh, story about that. So I think, yeah, I think all of these things are a continuum. And I think they, uh, to some primitive degree, they exist all the way back. In fact, in fact, prior to single cells. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what are some of the uh, implications of your research? Um, or I should, should say not implications, uh, applications of your research? Oh, well, uh, there are there are many. Uh, so in our lab, we, uh, we are trying to, uh, for example, so, so any any number of things. So first of all, just on the basic bioelectrics, uh, the idea is that if you understand how it is that uh, individual cells join into collectives that make decisions, so decisions about what shape they're going to build, right? The shape of the, the arm, the shape of the body, the shape of individual organs and tissues. Uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest thing holding back regenerative medicine is, is, is that, is the lack of understanding of how cellular collectives make decisions. It's basically a problem of, in collective intelligence. And if we understood how that worked, we could solve pretty much all medical problems except for infectious disease. So, so birth defects, uh, regener regeneration after injury, reprogramming cancer, uh, degenerative disease, aging, all of those things would be solved if we understood how cellular collectives make decisions. And so one of the implications of our work is that if we understand how bioelectricity is used as a medium 
to uh, implement the collective decision making of a, of, a, of a group of cells, we could then come up with uh, solutions to all of these problems I just mentioned. And we have in my group, we've had uh, proof of principle kinds of studies that show how you can fix birth defects, induce animals to regenerate their limbs, um, reprogram and prevent tumors, uh, all, all those kinds of things. So, so, so basic regenerative medicine is, I think, one of the, one of the biggest um, sets of outcomes from all of this. Then, then, of course, uh, there are things like if we understood how biology solved problems and exhibited basal intelligence before uh, brains came along, we could have architectures for machine learning that were not neuromorphic, that were not based on trying to copy the brain, which I think is very important. I think there's a whole, uh, there's a whole set of uh, pathways to general artificial intelligence if we could, if we could just step away from the architecture of the, of the human brain. Um, there are other applications, you know, specifically of the, of the xenobots. Biobots in general are a great uh, platform for uh, understand for, for first of all for making useful synthetic living machines so we're talking about applications in the environment in the body in in exploration in in uh manufacturing and so on and then and then of course there's the whole idea of synthetic morphology which is making novel constructs that never existed before which teaches us a lot about plasticity it teaches us about evolution and uh, what it is that uh evolution actually learns during during the course of a lineage and how much plasticity and uh, capacity cells have for uh, novel uh, novel types of configurations and that sheds light not only on our origins in terms of our evolutionary origins but more fundamentally what it means to be a sentient being that's made of parts in particular cells yeah that's fascinating stuff uh, i'm curious uh, in the <clears throat> distant future when uh, you're able to let's say there's a situation where you're able to sell morphology to human beings and say there was a married couple who decided to change their morphology to become more muscular would you expect their children to also uh, grow up to be muscular as well without having the treatment uh well uh, most most things are not passed along through sexual reproduction right so so yes. with the exception of with the exception of some really interesting work in transgenerational inheritance and this is largely stress as i understand it it's largely about various types of stress that, that are passed on to your offspring most of the things you do to your body including uh including exercise and uh, various modifications are not going to be passed on so i think uh if you if you you know if if we were going to have offspring that were modified in some way modifying your own body is not going to be the way to do it. You're going to have to, you're going to have to give um, the embryonic process various signals to, to, to make things happen. Right. And, and we, and we know that works because right now many people are, are unfortunately exposed to signals that perturb embryogenesis in a negative way. So, you know, smoking, alcohol, various drugs that are teratogens, uh, stress, uh, poor nutrition, all of those things uh, act, impact uh, the embryonic process negatively there are uh, an equal uh, set of signals that uh, i'm sure could be provided to impact it in positive ways and at some point i you know at some point i hope uh, these things are within within our within our control so that we can all be uh, we can all be healthy and enjoy uh, you know more productive uh, more productive lives but it's not going to be by by exercising the parents it's going to be by giving the uh, the embryonic process uh, the information needed to make it as as optimal as it can be 
Uh, what would be the best undergraduate course to enrol in for those listeners who'd like to contribute to research in your specific field within biology? Um, well, this is a I, I, this is actually a new field. Uh, it's a combination of disciplines that include uh, biology, computer science, uh, physics, engineering, um, and cognitive science. In fact, it even touches on things like philosophy of mind and so on. So. I think the best thing to do to uh, be in a good position to, imp uh, to to positively impact these kinds of these kinds of research questions are to study broadly in all of those areas. So, for example, you know, neuroscience, developmental biology, cell biology, um, physics, robotics, uh, bioengineering, synthetic biology, uh, good grounding in 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 philosophy and mathematics. I mean, all of those things are helpful. I think this is a very interdisciplinary field. It is not going to be pushed forward by uh, super specialists. It's there are there are, of course, um, very specific things you need to know and, and, and specific in depth uh, classes you should take. But uh, but I encourage students to think very broadly, because increasingly, the kinds of questions that could be answered within a single discipline are going to be used up and we're all going to be facing some very broad questions that don't respect our sort of primitive uh, divisions of, of the world into into scientific disciplines, which, you know, we, we did that hundreds of years ago when we really didn't know much at all. And yeah. uh, these all, all of these these distinctions are crumbling rapidly. True. Yeah. If you could recommend one nonfiction science book and one book of any genre, what would be your recommendations? Boy, that's really hard. Uh, there are there are so many uh, so many good books. Uh, I suppose if I had to pick just one uh, uh, nonfiction book off the top of my head, I would uh, probably choose uh, the classic uh, Gödel Escher Bach by uh, Douglas Hofstadter. That's a that's a classic. You can't can't go wrong with that one. Uh, so many things to think about there. Um, and um, uh, you know, as if we're talking if we're talking fiction. Uh, one of my favorite uh, science fiction writers is uh, is Stanislav Lem, L-E-M. So he's written a bunch of things that I think are good um, kind of uh, cognitive expanders to get you in the right frame of mind to think about what uh, the space of possible beings and the space of possible minds looks like that we're all going to be living in in some, you know, in the not so distant future. Well, when you say not so distant, like how, how far are you thinking? Well, look, we already have, uh, there are already uh, humans that are that are part cyborgs, right? There are people who can drive wheelchairs with their minds and, and run prosthetic limbs and have brain computer interfaces to various things. You know, I think in our lifetime, in the next uh, decade and two and three, we're going to see uh, a really radical expansion of what a uh, what a standard human looks like because of these interfaces so you could you know you you, you might uh, you might have an interface to a camera that provides you with a human-like vision but you might use that same port to instead get uh, get input that contains data from the stock market plus you know some feed some nasa feed from 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 mars and and, and maybe you know the output of some some device in your laboratory that you're interested in and you can get that into your cognitive apparatus the exact same way that you now process vision so it could be directly plugged in as a, as a, as a form of the sensation. Same thing with actuation. You know, people, when provided with prosthetics that don't mimic human. So, for example, the, there, was a, there was a nice paper where somebody had a prosthetic arm where the wrist was able to rotate 
all the way around, which normal human wrists don't do, no problem. They learn to use it very, you know, very rapidly. And so again, you can imagine that, right, part of your, part of the actuators of your body could be uh, some sort of a wheeled contraptions, you know, extra, extra pair of hands and those hands might be on your body or they might not be, they might be, in, you know, off in some factory somewhere. So that, that, that radical expansion of the typical sensory motor complement that humans have is, is already sort of uh, being, being expanded right now. And in the future, all of the bioengineering technologies in terms of uh, cyborgs and hybrids and various other ways to recombine evolved material, design material and software, every combination is a possible being and where we're going to see all that stuff. It's, I, I, it, it's gonna make the uh, sort of the opening scene of the original Star Wars movie, you know, that, that iconic cantina scene, it's, it's gonna make that seem tame by comparison. That, 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 was a pretty good, that was a pretty good way to start thinking about this, this future. Yeah, wow. We're in for a very interesting decade or two ahead. Yeah. Um, where can listeners best follow your work? A um, couple of places. Uh, so I have I have a website that's pretty up to date. Uh, it's uh, drmichaelevin.org. And then I, I'm on Twitter at, with uh, at uh, Dr. Michael, at drmichaelevin. Awesome. Michael Levin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for the conversation.